Hey everybody, for this inaugural episode, there is a one-time intro that I don't ever plan to do again. If you want to jump to the proper start of the episode, you can go ahead and skip to about the 4 minute 40 second mark and that ought to do it for you. Thanks. Fear is important to us, as it should be for myriad reasons. It is critical to our survival. It alerts us to dangers cues us into threats, drives us toward making certain decisions that can keep us alive. Dan Carlin, a podcaster who I admire and whose style I'm going to draw some influence from, although probably not doing any any kind of justice, he has stated that he thinks fear might have saved more lives, human or animal, than just about any other instinct that you can think of. And I'm inclined at least to agree. And it's important to me as a horror author, horror fan. I've just always been fascinated with fear as it's explored through real life circumstances and also through art, music, and of course, movies, books, television, etc. And as I record this and start off this first episode of the Healthy Fears podcast, I um, I, I recognize that this is a fearful time for the world entire. And there are things about fear that can be positive. For instance, it's a criticality to our survival. There are elements of fear that are negative, obviously, because sometimes fear can prevent us from doing things that we should be doing or could be doing for ourselves and for others, depending upon whether or not that fear absorbs us and consumes us and dominates us, particularly when the fear is unjustified. But On the flip side of that, when the fear is justified and we don't have a healthy respect for it, that can lead us to doing something reckless and unwise that can endanger ourselves and even others. And as an example of an unjustified, irrational fear, I myself did not want to put out this podcast for the longest time. I've had the idea for this podcast for over a year now, but I didn't want to actually take the time to record it and put myself out there because I was afraid of how people might receive it. What if nobody listens? Perish the thought. Probably nobody will. Um, but that's, you know, an irrational fear preventing me from doing something that I, I wanted to do and could do and for my own sake, if nothing else, should do. Versus, obviously, right now in the world, we do have a very real threat to us in terms of the COVID-19 disease and some parts of the world, even well-intentioned, some some parts of our society, I guess I should say, have flouted the, the fear that should be baked into us, that's baked into humankind from ancient times, a fear of pandemic, plague, the spread of disease. This is something we've had since pretty much recorded history. And people still don't have necessarily the healthy respect for the fear they should feel because of this. I know where I live. There's been a news station that adopted a slogan of facts, not fear. A local news station adopted that slogan in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I just thought, you know, those two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Sometimes the facts should frighten you. And sometimes they could give you peace of mind, sometimes a little bit of a mix of of both. But the I guess the summation of all this here is that 
I wanted to get this out the way at the beginning because now that I've actually taken the time to record this, my secondary fear now is that this is going to come across as exploitative, and I, I hope it doesn't come across that way. I do think that now's as good a time as any to point out the fact that fear is not inherently bad. In fact, it can be beneficial to us, and it can be essential to us. And as a subject and theme in pop culture and the creative arts, it's something that has interested me for a long time. It's something that I've written about on my personal website. And now it's something that this podcast is going to be about. So I hope you give it a listen and I hope you find it a worthwhile listen. And now I'll try to transition into this episode's proper beginning. Sleep is the cousin of death. Nas said that on the hip-hop classic, New York State of Mind. That's from the uh, 90s. And I love that quote. It's important enough for him in the song that he says it twice. It's important for this particular episode because there is a relationship between sleep and death in pop culture and in the arts and in our minds. We often refer to somebody who is deceased as looking to be at rest, rest in peace, we say. Death is sometimes referred to as the eternal sleep. Shakespeare gives us the quote from Hamlet, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, for in this sleep of death what dreams may come. So it's long been linked together sleep and death and yet sleep is very healthy for us it's essential for us sleep is an important component of our day-to-day -day lives we spend about a fourth to a third of our lifetimes in sleep and lack of sleep is connected to a lot of ailments and illnesses and just overall unhealthiness a lack of sleep is bad for your immune system, it's bad for your metabolism, it's bad for your mind's ability to process things. It's just an overall detriment. I could go on and on. And yet, sleep is kind of a, I don't want to say an enemy, but it's something that we don't have the best relationship with. We've seen throughout, uh, I think, you know, modern history at least, successful people indicate that they don't get very much sleep and kind of wear that as a badge of honor. And it's been around, you know, increasingly maybe um, in the present day. I, I know of some very recent, uh, let's say, high-profile celebrity individuals who have touted the minimal amount of sleep that they quote-unquote require or attain on a daily or nightly basis. And the indication there is, of course, is that if you don't sleep, the, the implication that if you don't sleep, you're up and around doing other things. You are being productive. You are making things happen, getting deals done. You're not wasting time, quote-unquote, sleeping. And sleep has often been attached to laziness. And yet, as a guy who works out a little bit and looks at a lot of online content for advice on how to recover, how to optimize your workouts, get the best results. Anybody who uh, is into fitness and muscle building or anything like that, for optimal results, they're going to tell you that sleep is an essential component. Most of the people that are adhering to the science of it are going to tell you that sleep is required 
for people that want to be not just fit, but as fit as possible. And if you miss out on some of your sleep, you are leaving some of your quote-unquote gains on the table. Nevertheless, despite all the known benefits of sleep, we have drugs that are designed to keep us awake. We kind of view, again, sleeping as, even if we don't view it as something that, you know, lazy people do in excess, we still see it as something that interferes with our ability to be productive. I know I've often thought about, man, what if I didn't have to sleep? Again, you leave consciousness and awareness behind for anywhere between a quarter to a third of your lifespan. Think of if you could just get that back. Think of basically feeling like you've lived one third longer than you already have and ever will just from the fact that you're awake and able to do things as opposed to being asleep and not being in control of anything. And that not being in control, that lack of awareness, consciousness when we're asleep, I think is a driving force, the driving force behind any negative thoughts that anybody might have regarding sleep. And I suppose it's worth pointing out, even though it probably goes without saying, but there are plenty of people out there who do not share that sentiment. This is hardly a, uh, a universal feeling towards sleep in terms of the negative. There are plenty of people out there who love and cherish their sleep and more power to you. I know for me personally, I have in the past suffered with chronic and very terrifying, very brutal nightmares that have have made me not want to go to sleep knowing that I'm going to see some things in in my sleep when my eyes close that are going to be horrific and awful and not associated with a horror movie that I watched necessarily just associated with something I saw in the news some article that I read um beyond that even when I was much much younger I also had bouts of sleep paralysis and if anybody is unaware of that uh of what that entails you you know you wake up and you can't move and you might even experience hallucinations and there's a great documentary that came out a few years ago regarding that called the nightmare and i think that's worth checking out if you haven't already checked it out as long as uh you aren't necessarily easily shaken uh by that sort of thing and i know that there are a lot of people like me that have have been through that and are still maybe going through that and there's not a whole lot there's therapy there's you know different techniques that that are recommended that you can try but there's often not a whole lot you can do to turn the tide on those kinds of dreams as part of the the negative aspect of sleep and part of the dread that you might feel if you are someone who suffers with nightmares if you are someone that's gone through sleep paralysis you lose complete control of your mind and body when you go into sleep. And I think that probably even goes back to the primal aspect of sleep is important to us, obviously, but we lose a certain level of alertness. And I'm sure that, you know, the, uh, the precursors of man had to keep that in mind when you're out there trying to survive in the world and there are creatures that hunt at night and they're waiting for you to fall asleep, waiting for you to be less alert, waiting for you to get drowsy when they can crawl up on you and you don't want to wake up. And, you know, there's something with sharp fangs at your neck. It's a little bit too late then. You want to hear it coming, but of course your senses are dulled because you're asleep. 
So that's part, I think, of of the fear that people can have, or at least anxiety that people can have surrounding sleep. There is a phobia, a true phobia of sleep called uh, somnophobia, or sometimes I've seen it uh, as hypnophobia. I say all of this because I feel like it explains why sleep has been a conduit for fear in horror stories for pretty much as long as there have been horror stories, even when it's not necessarily made explicit. Think of how many times you've seen a character suffer through a nightmare in a horror story and wake up afraid, and then maybe whatever they had the nightmare about proves to be already in the house, proves to be in the bedroom. Even absent the nightmare, how many times do characters wake up and realize somebody has crept into the house, crept into some place that they're supposed to be safe while they were asleep, while they were unaware? Predators hunt when we are asleep. It's not just in the night. It is when we are asleep. That's on purpose. Whether it's folkloric vampires sneaking into your room to feed on you while you sleep. Or it's Billy, the very human killer from Black Christmas, sneaking into Barb's room when she's passed out drunk to kill her. Or it's Freddy Krueger supernaturally entering your nightmares to kill you there. Or it's the goblin sitting on your chest in Henry Fuseli's The Nightmare, the painting. One way or another, sleep has been used by purveyors of horror in the arts and entertainment to show us when we are at our most vulnerable and susceptible to the things that wish to do us harm. Now, given the wide range of material that our fear of sleep or our weakness when we are asleep appears in, I'm not going to be able to talk about all of that in just one episode, at least to my liking. So rest assured, there will be future episodes going back over some of the things that I've just glossed on here. But for now, at long last, we are getting to the specific subject of this episode, the body snatchers. Originally published as a serial in 1954 in Collier's magazine, Jack Finney's novel The Body Snatchers was first adapted for the big screen in the 1956 classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers, then adapted again in 1978 for another version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers that might be even more famous, starring Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum, amongst others. There have been two more adaptations since then, but we're going to focus on the big three, the original work the 1956 version and the 1978 version. But as I say that, of course, I'm immediately lying because we're actually going to focus first and foremost on something that predates Jack Finney's novel. The term body snatching was originally used in reference to grave robbers, particularly those of the 19th century who stole bodies for the specific purpose of selling them to medical schools for dissection or anatomy lectures. This ties back to our link between death and sleep. The body snatchers were disturbing the expected eternal repose of the dead. Whereas old school grave robbers might only break open a grave to steal something valuable from a corpse, the body snatchers were stealing the entire corpse. This creates a cross-pollination once they've sold it to the medical schools with medical horror, which is something that I'll cover in a later episode, surely, and as we're going to discuss on and on, there's a lot of cross-pollination between horror 
the fear of sleep is tied to the fear of the dark. And it can also be tied to the fear of a medical procedure. Anybody who's had to go in for surgery that requires you to be anesthetized, there's a unique sleep-related anxiety at play there. But back to body snatching. That violation of a dead person's sleep took a turn into the world of murder when the two Williams, Burke and Hare, went on their murder spree. And even though they had gone from stealing corpses to creating them, they were still a source of inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's short story, The Body Snatcher. In 1945, that short story was adapted into a film starring Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, which I have a bit of love for. I, I like the old movies like that. But that one is not quite as well regarded or well known as the movie that was based on Finney's novel. And if you've seen the 1956 film that stars Kevin McCarthy and Dana Winter, I think you've experienced the best parts of Finney's novel. That adaptation and the 1978 version are both pretty faithful to the original book, although they do make a couple of pretty critical changes. And I guess it's at this point that I should mention that in order to discuss this as thoroughly as I'd like to, I am going to be going into some detail regarding all of these works, including character fates and the ultimate landing place of the story. So consider yourself advised, proceed however you would like to from here. One of the most standout differences between the original book and the 1956 adaptation and the 1978 version is how much emphasis is placed on fear overall, the environment of fear and paranoia, and especially as it pertains to fear of going to sleep. In the 1978 version, when one of the villains, played by Leonard Nimoy, is trying to sedate the lead character, played by Donald Sutherland, Sutherland's character literally tells him, you are killing me. Just the idea of being put to sleep at that point is being treated as the most dire threat imaginable in the movie. The reason for that being, the entire premise of the film is centered around pods, plants from space that are invading the Earth, hence the invasion in the title. And they will only try to replace and or replicate the human beings that they are targeting when that person is asleep. Now I say replace or replicate because in all three works in the original book, in the 1956 version and the 1978 version, the alien creatures themselves seem to think, based on what they're saying at least, they seem to think that what they're doing is not an act of killing. They speak to the people that they're trying to convince to uh, let them, you know, convince human beings to be assimilated, basically, or convince them to be uh, turned into this new version of themselves, this new emotionless version of themselves that is unlike what they've been, robbing them of their true identity, their true selves. They're trying to convince them of this by pointing out that when you go to sleep, you undergo this process, and it's painless. You're not going to feel a thing, and then you're going to wake up, and you're going to continue to feel no pain, no emotional pain. You're not going to feel greed. You're not going to feel anger. You're not going to feel hatred. But you're also not going to feel love. You're not going to feel joy. You're not going to feel any of the good things that we want to feel that make us alive that are in contrast to the bad things that also, frankly, make us feel alive. They say this as though it's kind of a, a situation where they're just going to download this person's consciousness into a new version of their body 
And this new version of their consciousness is now going to be devoid of emotion. They're going to filter out the emotion, but all of your thoughts, memories, everything else about you is still going to be there, but you're just going to be an emotionless, an emotionless version of yourself. Um, which to me, I don't know if the distinction between killing me literally at that point versus technically not killing me, but just depriving me of who I used to be. I don't know if there's really that much of a, a point in making that distinction there. And obviously these are the villains talking and trying to convince people to go along with this at this stage. So they might just be outright lying. Villains lie all the time, of course, but even if they're not lying, it might just be a matter of them missing the point um, because they are alien. They're missing the point regarding how this is going to impact a human being. The fact that I'm going to go to sleep as myself and wake up as technically myself, but I've been robbed of my humanity and robbed of my ability to experience the best things about being human. And yes, that comes along with the worst things about being human, but so be it. I have my free will. I, I want that. The fact that they're saying we're going to put you to sleep, wake you up kind of in a procedure, kind of again, going back to the, the medical horror tie in there. Um, we're going to put you to sleep, wake you up, and you're going to be this other version of yourself that is not really yourself, not truly yourself. They don't seem to recognize that distinction or recognize that that's not really a distinction, I should say. They don't seem to recognize that one way or another, you're killing me. And Donald Sutherland makes a point of saying that to Nimoy's character in the 1978 film. He wants to put a fine point on that. You are killing me, regardless of how you see this operation going. You see this transformation going you might see this as a download you might just be lying to me about that or that might be honestly the way it goes regardless you are killing me you're killing who i am that fear of going to sleep in this facet and then waking up to being something else being not who you used to be and having no power over that and trying to fight sleep which is something inevitable Again, I think that this is where the horror here, the fear of sleep, crosses over with medical horror. The villain in that scenario is a doctor in the book and in both adaptations. It's a doctor. He's using a needle and syringe to try to sedate the hero while describing what's going to happen to them in a very clinical manner. I think that pretty cleverly links back to the original usage for the term body snatcher linking that back to the mistrust of people in the medical industry and the people that might be associated with them, and particularly the power they have over us once we're unconscious. Now, in the real world, this is an understandable anxiety related to a situation where you don't have any control over anything, and you might even be worried that your surgeon, no matter how competent they are, also doesn't really have that much control over certain things that may happen depending on whatever your condition is whenever you go under the knife and after you've been put under. Uh, in the film, however, the, the people, or the pod people rather, that are trying to take over all of mankind, they are malicious, actively so, and they know that they have sleep on their side. Even after Donald Sutherland's hero in the 1978 version goes into a warehouse and sees where they are uploading or, uh, excuse me, loading uh, several different pods that they're going to transport across the country, start their global domination. He sets it on fire, destroys a lot of it, sets off some explosions, 
evades the guards. He's hiding out from them. Even after he does all that, he has this big heroic moment. We hear one of the guards say, it doesn't matter if we catch him. He has to go to sleep at some point. Sleep is on their side. The fact that we have to sleep is on their side. There's another moment in the 1978 film where, it, and it's very chilling, where we see a busload of children, busloads of children coming in, and they are uh, being primed to be replicated. We see the children being taken off the bus, and we hear one of the children say, I don't want to take a nap. I'm not ready for nap time. I'm not sleepy. And it's just kind of a background event, but we know what that means. That kid is not going to wake up or they're not going to wake up as the same individual that they were before they went to sleep. And that is something that I think is pretty underrated about the 1978 film as well as the 1956 film. The 1956 film is frequently lauded for kind of being a metaphor either for being anti-communist or uh, anti-McCarthyism, depending on whatever your point of view was at the time. Um, you know, people tend to bring a lot of, of whatever their baggage is or whatever their preconce preconceived notions are to whatever they're watching. So it can be interpreted. Uh, I think either way, the, the film's creators have insisted that it's not really a metaphor for either one of those things. That They just built it as a, uh, a thriller, a, a good old-fashioned horror sci-fi thriller. I'm not really a big death of the author person. I'm also not really an author knows best person for various reasons that I'll probably end up getting into at some point or another, but I don't want to balk down the podcast with that right now. But suffice to say, I think that it, it's kind of that, that to me is not the most interesting thing about that original version of the story. To me, it's also how it takes the story that Finney wrote and moves it so much farther down the road toward fear and a fear of what is going to happen to us when we're asleep and we don't have any defenses, we're not awake, we're not alert, what can happen to us? Because the original novel, Finney's book, is not very scary, particularly because it's not really seemingly designed to be very scary. It's very interesting to read that book having seen the films because the book, the, the hero, our hero in the book, who is also a doctor, Dr. Miles Bennell, he does not really seem ultra concerned about anything that's going on. It's it's kind of got the uh, the vibe of I don't want to say a cozy catastrophe. That's but I did just say it, didn't I? Um, it doesn't actually rise to the level of maybe a full on catastrophe for one. And I, I know that that term is used kind of derisively and I think maybe erroneously a lot of the time. But it, there is a vibe to the book where it feels like maybe his romantic pursuits sometimes, for instance, with uh, the the woman that he's interested in, Becky Driscoll, that concerns him more than the fact that aliens exist, have landed on Earth, are killing people and replacing them. The end of the world, the end of civilization sometimes comes off as less important to him than the fact that He's got a shot at Becky now, and he's been pining for, her, pining for her for a while, and, you know, he's like, hey, after all this alien invasion stuff passes over, then I'll take her out to dinner, see where things go. Maybe she'll uh, come back to my place for a nightcap, as we say in this era. He's still a man of action, but it feels like he has a bit of a cavalier attitude toward the prospect of Armageddon, and it's justified by the end of the book because the aliens just give up 
in the book. They don't seem to recognize that the fact that they take over human beings when they fall asleep and that human beings have to fall asleep is a huge advantage to them. Instead, Miles and Becky's determination and resilience and good old can-do spirit makes the aliens just flee back into outer space to ride the quote-unquote solar winds off to their next destination, even though this puts their entire existence in jeopardy. Now contrast that with the 1956 adaptation, where in the original ending and in the scene in the in the movie's most iconic scene, Kevin McCarthy is screaming in the street for anybody to listen to him. And these cars are passing him by and not listening to him. And he's shouting at them, you're next, you're next. They're already here. He knows that it's a hopeless situation, pretty much. He's delirious. He's just trying to get anybody to listen to him. And, and maybe there's an outside chance that we can resist if we act now to counter their activities. But even then, we might not survive. And he knows that because Becky's not with him because Becky didn't make it. For a film in 1956 adapted from a novel in which the guy gets the girl, it's a, it's a pretty brave choice to go in a completely different direction and kill off the lead female character and have the lead male reduced to delirium and panic and be presented as kind of a madman by the end of the film. The studio enforced a slightly happier ending, but I, I don't even know if it's, to me, really a full-on happy ending. It's it's more just hopeful um, that humanity at least is going to recognize what's happening here, but it's, it's still not a guarantee that we have a chance to actually win because, again, the creatures can get to us when we sleep, and we all have to sleep. There's no invention that's been made yet that prevents somebody from ever sleeping ever again. And I feel like this is an underrated aspect of both of the well-known Body Snatchers films, which are recognized as masterclasses in paranoid thrillers. But the idea that something as fundamental to us as sleep can be turned against us is extremely frightening and unsettling to me. And not to get too grim relating this to real-world scenarios, but I think it does apply just imagine trying to, to, to live in, you know, modern times to ancient times if the invaders came in to your village, to your city, to wherever it is where you lived and started destroying everything. And you know that if they capture you, that is the end for you. So you try to flee. You go on the run. You become a fugitive from your own land. But part of going on the run is never getting a chance to rest and yet your body eventually demanding that you rest, your body just giving out on you and shutting down on you eventually and saying, I can't go on. You want to go on, but physically, I, almost a separate entity, I, your body, cannot go on from what you as, as an individual, your identity, would rather do because you know that it's unsafe to slow down and sleep. You will lose hours that your pursuers will have potentially to their advantage to try to gain on you. And even if it's a, a non-man-made disaster, even if it's just a storm striking your city or an earthquake that destroys the place where you live, we see people in those scenarios and they just always, you know, after a certain time, look so exhausted because finding a place, a time and place to just rest your head and shut your eyes for a little while, something so essential to us that we talked about at the beginning, that's something that can be turned against you in, in those those times of crisis when there isn't any time to sleep. 
there is sleep it becomes a luxury we can't afford it and yet it's not really a luxury at all it's something that is essential to us if we go long enough without it we will suffer the consequences and the way that it's presented in invasion of the body snatchers i think grounds the fear of sleep despite the fact that it occurs in a science fiction film it's grounded in a way that separates it from some of the other examples that we might have mentioned before where for instance in a nightmare on elm street you have an evil entity crawling into your nightmares to kill you via your nightmares now that's scary but it's a different type of scary that doesn't really carry over into the real world the way that it does in invasion of the body snatchers even figuratively Sleep is associated with an inattentiveness toward dangers that are happening to ourselves and to others. To be caught sleeping is to be caught unawares. And that's something for us to be wary of. And for anybody who is more inclined to view the 1956 film allegorically, that makes the film's fear of sleep work on two different levels. And that even applies to the 1978 film, which came out at a time when paranoid conspiracy thrillers, political thrillers, were all the rage in the wake of Watergate. And that film certainly has been viewed and can be viewed as an allegory for what can happen to any of us if we are too wrapped up in our own activities and lives to be conscious of what's happening to those around us, whether at the micro level of society or the macro level of society, whether it's our leadership our officials, or our friends and neighbors, or even our environment for that matter. There is a certain element of environmental horror crossover here when you consider that the threat comes from the cosmic environment, it comes from outer space. The quote-unquote people that try to take over the planet, take over civilization, are plant-based life forms. And, fittingly, according to sleep.org, plants don't have the same kind of a definition of sleep that we have as human beings. Plants lacking a central nervous system, they don't really have the same kind of sleep regulators. They do have circadian rhythms and obviously because of photosynthesis have certain adherences to light versus darkness, sunlight in particular. They don't have to sleep the way we have to sleep. They don't lose the same level of awareness that we have. Sleep is vital to us. It can even be desirable and enjoyable to us. And yet, depending on the circumstances, it can also be a burden to us, much like hunger or thirst. Because when we stop to obey that biological urge to shut our eyes, shut down our minds, shut off our bodies, we might be inviting something that's hunting us to come after us when we are still and quiet and defenseless. This has been episode one of the Healthy Fears podcast. Thank you for listening this far. And if you enjoyed what you heard, first and foremost, I'm very grateful for that. Secondly, if you want to hear more, episode two is out simultaneously as episode one. Also, if you're interested, you can find more information about me at johnnycompton.com. You can see there a list of my short stories that have been published in various platforms. You can also read reviews or random thoughts I have, usually about the horror genre, although I do occasionally talk about other subjects. As for this podcast, the subject of episode two is a fear of the dark, which 
I think is a very close relative to the subject of the fear of sleep. Following that, episode 3 will be released in two weeks, and that is the planned schedule going forward. Every two weeks, I will release another episode, and I hope you'll join me for all of them. Feel free to subscribe so that you don't miss any of them. One way or another, until you hear from me again, maybe try to keep your eyes open.